Hello and welcome to The Race to the White House, where we cover everything you need to know about the 2016 US elections. I'm Emma Lancaster and I'll be your host for the next 41 days as we count down to November 8. And a fun fact for you, 41 days to go, and this was the number of contests won by Donald Trump during the Republican primary season. Uh, But did Trump win the first general election debate? TV polls are suggesting that Hillary won the presidential debate hands down. But Donald Trump is insisting today he did really well before then going on to attack the moderator as well as the quality of his microphone. Uh, So joining me in the studio now to provide us with their savvy punditry and dissect the first US presidential debate are our regular guest Tom Switzer. Welcome Tom. G'day Emma, great to be here. And joining us over the phone this week, Brendan O'Connor. Hi, Brendan. Great to be talking with you all. And also a special guest, the erudite Harvard professor, Jennifer Hochschild, all the way from the US, joining us here in the studio today. Welcome, Jennifer. Glad to be here. Thank you. So Jennifer is a professor of government at Harvard University, professor of African and African-American studies and the immediate past president of the American Political Science Association. She recently co-authored the book, Do the Facts Matter? Information and Misinformation in American Politics. And I'm glad we have you all here to make sense of exactly what happened just one day ago when Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton went head to head in the 90 minute general election debate. Uh, It was the first of the three presidential debates. The candidates clashed over the economy, foreign policy, tax evasion and race, with an estimated 100 million viewers in America, slightly less than the Super Bowl. Uh, Today, we're dedicating the entire episode to dissecting exactly just what happened, what was said and what was not said. Uh, So here are some highlights I'm just going to play for you now to refresh your memory. He's paid nothing in federal taxes. Nobody was caring much about it, uh, but I was the one that got him to produce uh, the birth certificate. Secretary Clinton also fought it. I mean, you know, now everybody in mainstream is going to say, oh, that's not true. Look, it's true. I think Donald just criticized me for preparing for this debate. And you know what else I prepared for? I prepared to be president. I don't believe that Hillary has the stamina. As soon as he travels to 112 countries and negotiates a peace deal, a ceasefire, or even spends 11 hours testifying in in front of uh, a congressional committee, he can talk to me about stamina. Could this debate be a tipping point in the race to the White House? And who came out on top? Uh, Jennifer, what are your thoughts? Well, the first thing I should say is we political scientists spend a lot of time talking about motivated reasoning, which is to say that people are very, very inclined to believe what they want to believe because they have an ideology, they have a set of friends, they have a leader that they like. and So, so of course, I study motivated reasoning, but I'm also subject to it. So uh, you should take everything that I say with, with a grain of salt. <laughs> Having said that, of course, I believe that I'm an objective observer, which is exactly what one would say as a mode in any case. Um, I think she did very well, and I think he did very poorly. She was sufficiently strong and tough-edged that she looked like she could be a leader, she could be the president of the free world, uh, but she didn't bully, she didn't interrupt him as much as he interrupted her. She smiled. She was just sufficiently, I don't know, feminine is the right word, sort of human, soft, personable, that she looked kind of like a real person and he looked kind of like a domineering bully. And Tom, do you agree? 
Well, I think um, Jennifer has reflected the conventional wisdom, uh, certainly among most uh, of the experts following this debate. There's no question that as the debate went on, Hillary Clinton was sounder in style and substance, and she was in command of the facts and the history, and Trump uh, all too often took her bait and looked exceedingly defensive. But this was a 90-minute debate, and if there were 100 million Americans tuning in, I think it's a fair bet that a lot of them started to tune out at about 20, 30 minutes into the debate. And I think by any objective criteria, Trump held his own during the first part of that debate, particularly on the issue of globalization and lost manufacturing jobs. He kept highlighting the point that Hillary Clinton is part of this wretched Washington establishment that has presided over wage stagnation, rising income inequality. And uh, he says that he has the answers to stop uh, these trade deals that she supported. So I think to that extent, it actually helped him. And I think the other point to bear in mind is a lot of us experts reflect this consensus about the debate, but a lot of the folks who are attracted to Trump, including a lot of folks who don't usually vote, I suspect they were uh, attracted to Trump and his message railing against globalization and the establishment. And they particularly were, I suspect, uh, impressed with his view that he was the outsider candidate and that she's the status quo candidate in a change year election. I suspect that resonates with those crucial folks, uh, particularly in those Rust Belt states who are now living in deindustrialized towns. And Brendan, what are your thoughts on yesterday's debate? Well, I'll try to t- bring the two of our uh, panellists in the studio together. I mean, I'm a big fan of Jennifer's book, Facing Up to the American Dream. And I suppose Thank you. one of the things that um, lots of people rightly have been very concerned about is the difficulty of middle-class Americans and then sort of poorer Americans to make ends meet throughout the Obama presidency, but really going back um, you know, to the period of the sort of rise of Ronald Reagan and Reaganomics. So there's a sense that there is a really serious problem in terms of the American middle class having less job stability, inequality being major problems in the United States. Both candidates and really in, in, in really all recent American political elections we can think of gesture to these issues in very symbolic ways that don't really flesh out how you could actually do something about it. And I think Trump in some ways is a kind of high point of this gesturing of saying, look, You'd have these tariffs, you could reverse the industrialization. All of this is complete nonsense. Now, does, because it's impractical, it can't be put into place. Does Hillary Clinton have an alternative? She has a sort of bullet point of, of ideas of how you might revitalize middle class jobs. But unfortunately, because she's against Trump, these things will not get tested in any great detail. There was no time to say, okay, you've got an infrastructure plan, you've got a plan for being high tech jobs. But how do you do that? Because of the bluster and, uh, and really fantasy world that Trump occupies in terms of economic policy, you can't actually get to any policy specific. And this is pretty typical of these presidential debates, that they operate at this incredibly symbolic level, which is, I've argued in the past, kind of therapeutic to make people feel good or potentially good about the future, but really has very little to do with what they might actually put in place. So this debate was at times fiery and I think, you know, marked by a tremendous amount of interruptions as well. Trump interrupted Clinton 25 times in the debate in the first 26 minutes. So he talked over Clinton, obviously, and moderator Lester Holt with ease. So was this debate a collision between Donald Trump's politics of dominance and Hillary Clinton's politics of preparation? Jennifer? 
I, I think it's partly that. I, I don't think that's a wrong characterization. Uh, I would like to think that there was a little more substance to it than that. Um, and, you know, I think you're right that 90 minutes was a long time. I mean, I do this professionally for a living, and by 70 or 80 minutes, I was checking my email. Um, and, you know, so, so I think that's right. Having said that, I do think she made some substantive points. I think he did, too. And I think clearly the sort of insider-outsider, he kept trying to say, you're responsible for everything that's happened in American politics for the last 50 years. And he surely knows that that's not literally true, but it didn't need to be. Mm. The point that sort of you're, you're in, I'm out, and the ins have screwed everything up. Um, <laughs> so I, I think it was partly the kind of the dominance preparation, but I also think each of them made, I want to say she made more, specific substantive sentences, not detailed policy proposals, surely, but, but a few clear sentences. You know, he says terrible things about women. You are responsible for everything that's happened. Uh, you know, th- there were sort of sound bites on both sides that I think got us a little bit past mere dominance and preparedness. Tom? Well, look, uh, he has distinguished himself throughout the last 12 months uh, from his Republican rivals and now Hillary Clinton by his boisterous buffoonery, if you like, and it doesn't seem to have hurt him so far. The question is, to what extent does that kind of conduct turn off undecideds? And I think yep. that's a really big issue that's here. Exactly uh, it probably hurts him, but we wait to see. Yeah, I would. Just, that's the point I want to make. That he, roughly speaking, he's got forty percent of the voters, or the plausible voters. She's got roughly forty percent of the plausible voters. The remaining twenty percent, probably ten to fifteen percent of them, won't vote because they dislike both of them. And so, what they're really doing is fighting over maybe five to seven percent mm. of the plausible voters. Uh, and because, of course, we don't have compulsory voting, mm. uh, none of them may vote. Um, in which case, I don't know. You end up with a arithmetic tie between the two of them or something. So it's it's really, they, they each had to maintain their own base. But beyond that, there's really about 5% of the voters. But you know, the one thing that struck me about that opening scene, those first 15 minutes, when Trump actually was doing pretty well on the question of globalization and trade deals and the establishment, was that I suspect a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters watching that part of the debate would have agreed with Trump. Now that won't make them necessarily vote for Trump, but it's far from it because they can't stand the man for various reasons. But on the issue of establishment versus outsiders, I suspect that kind of episode that we saw in the first 20 minutes uh, yesterday or this week uh, shows that they might be less inclined to vote for Hillary. And that's an important point to bear in mind in a country with voluntary voting. Yeah, I think uh, one one potential argument is that uh, this is going to be a low turnout election, but pox on both your houses. Um, (laughs) Oh, and all your houses because the third party candidates don't matter. Um, so that I think is a genuine issue. Um, I also Hillary does have a much better ground game, much much Indeed. better organization. Mm-hmm. Very intense. I mean, you know, kind of the the Quantoids who started in two thousand eight, continued two thousand twelve, continued two thousand sixteen. So if anybody's going to be able to kind of know, you know, which house to show up at nine in the morning with the van and the babysitter that says, all right. Mm. We got your kid. You get to the polls. Um, <laughs> that's right. And that's pretty much what you need yeah. with this segment of the population. And Trump is, doesn't have a very good organization, does he? He doesn't have any organization right. much at all, or at least so, so we don't think. Mm. The Race for the White House, where we put the 2016 US election in perspective. To listen to other episodes in this series, head to theconversation.com or tune in on Wednesday nights at 7.30 on 107.3. 
I think the debate definitely showcased the differences between the two candidates' temperaments, um, <laughs> partly thanks to moderator Lester Holt's choice to step back and let the candidates interact. But how do you think uh, the hubris strategy that um, Clinton seemed to be employing around Trump's privileged background worked out? There were just some things that he couldn't leave alone. I think that's a totally fascinating question, and I'm very uncertain what the answer is. I mean, my reaction when he said, well, I've got friends who said making $650 million isn't all that much money, was, oh, he just lost the election. That was a really stupid thing to say. And, well, of course I don't pay taxes. Well, of course I foreclose houses. That's what businessmen do. I mean, over and over, either she trapped him or he couldn't resist or he actually wanted to say those things. <laughs> and, and, and so one reaction is, this was really dumb. You know, he's talking to people whose houses were or could have been foreclosed on, and so you don't gloat over that. The, it, it is also the case, thinking about it later, it, this is true of Americans. I don't know if it's true of Australians. We have a considerable fascination for just sheer unmitigated wealth. I mean, the old Gilded Age, you know, Biltmore, the Vanderbilts, the Rockefellers, well, not the Rockefellers, you know. The, the, and, and I saw this when I did interviews well, 30 or 40 years ago. It's not that people think they themselves are going to make $650 million in their lifetime, but they like it, they admire it, they enjoy it, they play with it, the old TV show Dallas. So it's possible that for some segment of the population, this was actually a very smart strategy, whether intentional and strategy on his part, I'm not sure, but but it could have resonated positively rather than negatively. My best guess is the, the people for whom that resonates positively are already in his camp, so he didn't win any of the additional 5%. So you think he's perhaps yeah. um, catering towards the aspirational voter? Yes. I think that's a cleaner way of putting it than what I said. Um, it, not even necessarily the aspirational voter, the voter who just admires success. You know, even if I don't think I'm going to have it, you know, somebody really made it. Good for them. I've done a lot of research on negative stereotypes about Americans. And two of the <laughs> kind of six prominent stereotypes that are held around the world are that Americans brag more than other people in other nations and that they talk about money. There's a willingness to talk about commerce, to talk about how much money people have. And that those things date back very a very long way to the early 19th century. Jane Austen Trump, talked about money. Jane Austen's yeah, I mean, characters like, talked yeah. about money. They didn't brag, but they did talk about money. Yeah, I mean, these stereotypes needn't be entirely true or fair <laughs> to be to be proliferated, but Trump clearly feeds into these two stereotypes. And I mean, it's not surprising that there are very negative views of Trump around the world. If it was a, a global ballot, uh, Trump would lose, you know, lose considerably. I mean, it would be a, it'd be a landslide to Hillary Clinton. I think it's an advantage in the American context to Hillary Clinton in the sense of reinforcing this idea that this is a bragging, egotistical man. Those people I talked to about the debate who don't follow politics very closely, that's their reaction. And I think that that's useful for her uh, to have that sense of this is a guy who constantly talks about how great he is, how much money he's earned. And for those voters who are not particularly political, which once again hard to get in their mind, I think that is a useful kind of image for the Hillary Clinton camp to play upon to some extent. And then again, I mean, Trump is also making this theme, make a greater, let's make America great again. And that appeals to a lot of folks who genuinely believe that the United States is heading in the wrong direction and polls back this up, uh, that the United States is in serious long-term decline and uh, they're 
you know, as we discussed last week, Brendan, they're suffering from foreign policy fatigue. They're tired of the world. I think Trump resonates with those folks in a way that no Republican or even Democrat, with the possible exception of Bernie Sanders, has been able to do. I think the question for me on that is whether his bragging about his wealth and his success can be seen as, I know how to make not only myself, but the country great again, (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or whether it's seen as, I'm so far different from you, I'm so removed from your struggling little petty ante lives Mm. that, you know, 650 million, eh, it's not so much money. Um, And so whether it distances Mm. himself or reinforces... Uh, my, my sense with a lot of these Trump supporters, and this is probably just the, the base, it's not average uh, ordinary Americans outside of that realm, uh, they, they probably think that he's a can-do guy and he can fix things. And yeah. that's what Washington lacks. Mm-hmm. And that's why yeah, they may be attracted to that, Brennan. I mean, it's one of the interesting things about Trump's, if you want to use the word populism, that most populism usually says, look, the people have got to have more say. Mm. And you can see that to some extent in the kind of movement that Sanders wanted to build. Say, look, I'm just part of a movement. It's the movement of the 99% against the 1%, or it's the movement of those who have been treated unequally. For Trump, there's not so much of that. Sure, he sees himself as connecting with the crowd, but he comes along saying, look, your leaders are stupid. I'd be better. And there's a bunch of businessmen who are my friends, and we could run the country 100 times better than these other idiots who have been stupid and doing a poor job. So it's a, it's a strongman form of populism. Yep. Some might say that's, that's typical of kind of right-wing populism, that it wants to invest in powerful individuals who know better than all of these corrupt elites that they're mm. going to overturn. The Race for the White House, a US election podcast for the non-American. So fact-checking, it's become a dominant narrative in the media around the presidential debate and political language. So obviously now a number of news organisations quickly rushed to dissect the claims made by both Clinton and Trump yesterday. We have PolitiFact in the US with their pants on fire scoring. There appears to be a growing willingness of mainstream media to call out a lie is a lie. Uh, So do the facts matter when it comes to political discourse? And does the truth sway voters? Uh, Let's start with you, Jennifer, given you have written a book on this topic? <laughs> uh, well, I hope so. Um, I mean, the book starts with this famous quote from Thomas Jefferson. You know, if you, if you don't quote Tocqueville, you quote Jefferson, right? Um, and that, you know, what we need is an educated citizenry because that's the only way in which democracy is going to work because an educated citizenry is essential for holding leaders responsible and for preventing tyranny and for, roughly speaking, figuring out what right, good public policies are. That's not Jefferson's language. Um and, you know, throughout American history, people have worried intensely about the fact that we don't have a citizenry that looks anything like that. Um, I don't know whether the misinformation both being purveyed and absorbed and used in this election is qualitatively different than it has been in previous elections. Any politician has a very strong incentive to exaggerate or make up facts that fit his or her electoral strategy and to ignore or discount ones that don't. And again, of course, we saw this in the debate. Yes, you did say you supported the Iraq war. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, you did. no I didn't. Mm. There's a video. We, you know, we can show it on TV. Um, that level of overt disagreement about what the actual narrowly defined facts are, I think is pretty new. Um, And I hope it has the effect of 
pushing people to say, I may not like it, but I actually want to know what the real answer is rather than just what my guy says it is. One of the things that I looked at after the debate was how many times did Trump make public statements about Obama being born outside of the United States? And there's a whole list of these kind of moments where he intervenes into that Bertha debate, not just to uh, clear up something that was said by possibly a surrogate of Hillary Clinton in 2008. He fueled that fire by making claims that no one from Obama's high school could remember who he was, as though he was a phantom individual who had invented a life. So there was, there are many things on the public record, the questioning of the birth certificate itself when it was released, which really go to the kind of conspiratorial sort of side of Donald Trump, which has been another fascinating thing to follow, how he meddles in that world of conspiracies to do with 9-11, to do with the Iraq war, the Bertha movement, clearly, which he was a big player in, in a way that we're not, I suppose, used to in mainstream politics of people just going so much against the kind of norms to some extent about what is kind of polite conversation in American debates, as we saw yesterday, with largely the lack of clapping, do have a formality to them and a set of kind of boundaries that Trump just transgresses so often. Tom, are we living in a post-fact world? <laughs> post-fact world. Well, I think all things considered, these fact-checkers are uh, self-evidently a, a good thing to hold politicians to, and public figures to account. And particularly when you're dealing with someone like a serial a liar like Donald Trump. But I think there's a danger in overstating its significance. Uh, I thought that the moderator, Lester Holt, all things considered, did a very good job in the debate, in moderating the debate. But uh, he's hardly a paragon of fact-checking himself. Uh, the Wall Street Journal has made a big point of this in the last uh, few days since the debate, that uh, Trump, when he talked about um, this thing called stop and frisk as a way to take the gun away from criminals in high-crime areas and to protect the innocent, that uh, comment by uh, Trump uh, provoked uh, Lester Holt to say that stop and frisk was ruled unconstitutional in New York. Well, the Wall Street Journal go into great detail saying that it, it's not unconstitutional, that it was actually overruled. Now, he... he no, it wasn't. Well, this is what the Wall Street Journal says, is that uh, uh, the ruling in the case came from a, a, a judge who later had the case taken away from her. She did. And Clinton then echoed Holt in saying that it was unconstitutional. But uh, the case is still not unconstitutional, and the journal today goes into great lengths to say that. So that in itself, the fact that there is disagreement about this between Jennifer and me, I don't know enough about the subject. I'm just going by the Wall Street Journal editorial page, who's presumably done their research. They've dedicated two editorials to this. This just shows that sometimes it's open to interpretation, these facts. Yes, that's a complicated case. But a lot of these issues can be complicated. Yes, a lot of issues can be complicated. The question of where Obama was born is not complicated. Well, that's true. I'm I'm so, so, (laughs) you know, so... I don't think the journal's saying that either. (laughs) Right. Yes, even the journal. So part of what we have to think about when we talk about kind of the post-fact world is exactly this distinction, the degree to which Trump but other politicians also are simply going to say things that are demonstrably clearly just wrong and how that shades into things where you can, if you work hard enough, you can create an interpretation that's not crazy on one side or another. (laughs) 
you're listening to The Race to the White House on 2SER 107.3. To download this podcast, head to theconversation.com or your favourite podcast app and look for The Race to the White House. I'm here with Tom Switzer, Brendan O'Connor joining us over the phone and, of course, special guest here, Harvard professor Jennifer Hochschild. We've been discussing the first presidential debate held on Monday night US time, Tuesday morning here in Australia. Uh, One down and two more to go. Uh, So the next debate is October 9 at Washington University in St. Louis. In this debate, the setup is a town hall style and although a moderator will be present, voters at the debate will be able to ask questions of the candidates directly. And for the first time, uh, found out this morning, the Commission on Presidential Debates has confirmed a new format for the second showdown between Clinton and Trump. Americans will be able to submit and vote on questions online that will then be considered by ABC and CNN for the debate. So who do you think out of Trump and Clinton will respond best to uh, this type of town hall environment? Uh, What's interesting about the town hall environment is Trump doesn't do this on the campaign. I mean, one of the great skills that Bill Clinton had was being able to go into a diner, eat a hamburger and have a chat to whoever was there and identify with them, being able to relate to their family, to their job situation, to where they lived in the United States. Trump doesn't do that. He doesn't. Do, he didn't do that in Iowa. He didn't do it in New Hampshire. He likes the feel of a large crowd. He likes doing the interaction of them. But he doesn't do this kind of meet and greet thing, which the town hall uh, setting is really trying to replicate. And that will be interesting because this isn't something he's practiced at. And where most politicians, they have to build up their skills in this area. It's not a, it's not a strength in some ways of Hillary Clinton's, but she's done a lot of it because it's how you engage in what's called retail politics. So Trump's unfamiliarity with this format, I think it's going to be quite interesting to watch. Yeah, my sense is that Hillary Clinton is so stiff on the campaign trail, she makes Bill Shorten appear animated. I mean, I just don't think she does very well in those sort of settings. Uh, she's not like her husband. He was brilliant in those town hall settings. I think she lacks that kind of empathy. But you're right, Trump's not much better himself. It's hard to say. I mean, it depends on who who's in the audience, what kind of questions are asked. I mean... If we get uh, a few folks who have been displaced by trade and who are very disoriented by the pace of cultural and social change, as we've discussed, that self-evidently would help Donald Trump, I suspect. Um, but uh, we wait and see what the uh, the questions are like and what what type of folks are in that town hall. Yeah, that's exactly my view, which is that she will be. It's pretty predictable. She'll be she'll be pretty good. Yeah. Uh, she's pretty she sound anyway. Yeah, she's she, pretty yeah. sound. You know, yeah. she'll she'll work hard. She'll smile. She'll engage. She does not have Bill. Somebody said mm. yesterday that if Joe Biden were running in this campaign, you know, it would be it over. Would be, it'd be over. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, she doesn't have that. She tries very hard. So I think that the answer to your question is will depend enormously on kind of the immediate interaction between Trump and the his interlocutor. That he will just go off on a rant and and be quite hostile, at least uncontrolled if he doesn't like the question, and he will be all over it if he does. Uh, Now we're nearing the end of the show today and it's time for a gut call. Uh, So considering the performance we just saw, the word salad of Trump and Clinton's calmness in the face of Trump's bluster, if the election was held tomorrow and the US went to the polls, who would America choose for the next four years? Uh, Jennifer, you're our guest, special guest today, so you go first. Uh, I believe Clinton... But I'm not willing to bet more than about 50 cents on that. 
Well, I've long said uh, Hillary Clinton, I think the demography, electoral arithmetic, all the forecasting agencies, they all point to a Hillary Clinton victory. But this is, as we've said before on this program, it's a very unconventional, uh, volatile environment. And uh, I'm not as confident about Hillary Clinton winning as I was, say, a month ago. And Brendan? I've said Hillary Clinton all year, but it was a steadying influence, this debate. Uh, It reminded us of what she's good at. She's able to talk about ideas for 90 minutes. There was a lot of stamina shown by Hillary Clinton, and I don't think she's going to fall into the trap that Al Gore did. Al Gore, we saw three versions of him in the 2000 race against George W. Bush. I think Hillary Clinton's best to not try to be too funny, not try to be something she isn't, and she did that very, I think, relatively effectively in the debate. Polls only forecast uh, what the polls are telling us about November 8 today. Hillary's chance of winning as of today is... 53.8% compared to 56.2% last week. That's a drop of 2.4%. So Donald Trump sitting at 46.2%. And more disturbingly, from Hillary's perspective, her lead, her convincing lead in that crucial battleground state of Pennsylvania, which has gone Democrat in every election since 1988, she had a double-digit lead. It's now only about a 1.52% lead. Yeah. Well, uh, we can expect a rematch on October 9 at Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, The next debate, though, the one to watch is a week away, the vice presidential debate happening in Farmville, Virginia on October 4th. Um, Any tips, anything to watch out for there? Um, Not exactly a tip for the debate, but there has been considerable discussion if Trump were to win, the last thing he actually wants to do is run the country as president. So he might well resign 48 hours after winning. And so we may may want to pay a whole lot of attention to his vice presidential choice. Can you see him kind of negotiating with, you know, Ryan in Congress? You know, what what distinguishes these two candidates for the vice presidency, uh, Tim Kaine and uh, Pence from Indiana, is that they are, all things considered, pretty dull and boring. And they're more policy-oriented, which indicates that the ratings will be very low. Fair enough. That brings us to the close of the third episode of The Race to the White House. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to The Conversation's website, theconversation.com. You can also search for us in your favourite podcast app. Thanks to Tom Switzer, Brendan O'Connor and Jennifer Hochschild for helping us to make sense of it all. Uh, The rematch between Clinton and Trump in US time, Sunday, October 9. But we'll see you back here next week counting down The Race to the White House. (laughs) 